It was Tuesday, November 16, 1999, in Charlotte, North Carolina. The 911 call came in shortly before 12.30 a.m. The operator called, asked the caller whether police, fire, or medic was needed, and the caller, a woman, responded with, Police, I've been shot, I've been shot. The caller was Sherika Adams, 24 years old and eight months pregnant. She informed the 911 operator that she was at Wessex Square and had been shot in the neck and the back while driving, but managed to pull her car into a driveway. What she said next, though, would be a bombshell. This is an excerpt from the 911 call that Sherika had with the 911 operator. So I will just go back and forth with this rather than play you the audio because I could not find it. The operator says, okay, how did this happen? Sherika responds, quote, I was following my baby's daddy, Ray Carruth, the football player. The operator, so you think he did it? Sherika, he was in the car in front of me and he slowed down and somebody pulled up beside me and did this. The operator, and then where'd he go? Sherika, he just left. I think he did it. I don't know what to think. Emergency services pulled up to the house at Farrell Block which owned the driveway on Rail Road that Sherika managed to pull into within 12 minutes of her 911 call. She was taken to the Carolinas Medical Center and it was determined that Sherika had been, four, been shot four times. Her baby was delivered by emergency cesarean section at 1.42 a.m. just an, over an hour after his mother had been shot. The baby, named Chancellor Lee Adams, did not have a good prognosis as doctors did not expect him to survive. Seven hours after her son was born, Sherika regained consciousness and began communicating with detectives and answering their questions by scribbling notes. She wrote to them that Caruth had been driving in front of her and stopped on the road blocking her and at which, a, and at which point another car pulled up and opened fire on her. After the shooting, he had taken off and did not return. And when asked if Caruth was involved, she drew a large question mark. Tired from all of the questioning, the police officers left thinking that they would have an, another opportunity to speak with Sherika. She then drifted off to sleep and never awakened. You are now listening to Murder V. Rope. I am your host, V. Caruth wanted to be a screenwriter when his football days were over and yet nothing that Ray Caruth could have ever dreamed up for Hollywood could have matched this, right? He was a first round NFL draft choice and he was accused of murder and was on the lam at this point, making cell phone calls to his bail bondsman from inside the trunk of a friend's Toyota Camry in a motel parking lot. Where 25 year old at the time, Ray Carruth was a genial and well-liked wide receiver from Carolina Panthers. And this is where he found himself on the evening of December 15th. And when the FBI agents popped the trunk and closed in on Ray Carruth, he instantly put both of his hands up to be taken into custody and surrendered, perhaps to never see freedom again. And this is a big shock to the people closest to Ray Carruth because he became the first active NFL player to be ever charged with first-degree murder. And so 
How did we get here? What motive could he have had? And none of this was difficult to answer as the main question. Who is Ray Carruth? Well, to start with, he's not Ray Carruth. Legally, he's Ray Lamar Wiggins, his surname coming from a biological father who didn't raise him. Yet, while growing up in Sacramento, he always went by the last name his mother Theodre took on when she married his stepfather. When that marriage broke up, Theodre was left to raise Ray alone, and she forged an extraordinarily close bond with him. Ray loved sports, and at age seven, he drew pictures of himself as an NFL player, and he also had a soft side, especially around women. As he grew into a teen, eventually he earned a football scholarship to Colorado and he proved deft at winning the affection and trust of women, sometimes dating several of them simultaneously without the others knowing. And while he was a sophomore in college, he fathered a son, Rolando, with a girlfriend in Sacramento and was later ordered to pay $3,500 a month in child support. Ray was self-described as a daydreamer. He constantly scripted stories that he would test on his teammates, which is what Vicki Michaels of the Denver Post wrote about Ray Carruth in 1995. But here are some things about Ray Carruth that might have helped Sherika Adams had she put them together soon enough. He had never really grown up. He already had that four-year-old son that I just mentioned back in California by the time they met, and he had never even sent Rolando a birthday present. He also had provided no child support until the mother took him to court. And even then, after the, uh, the judge issued a temporary order, it was requiring him to pay $550 a month. Now, you may be asking yourself, V, you just told us he was paying $3,500. So, let's get into that. After he was ordered to pay the $5,500 a month, he met with the mother of the child and she agreed to accept just over half of that or $3,500 on the condition that he be a better father. Just spend more time with the kid. And after he failed to do that, according to her testimony, she called him and they had a spirited discussion and he told her not to be surprised if she got into a fatal car accident. He says, of course, that he was only joking. Meanwhile, he had moved on to another girl because there were always plenty to choose from. He was almost 23 and she was a 17-year-old high school student in Colorado. He plied her with money and clothes and a Lexus and later when she told him that she was pregnant, he told her she couldn't have the baby. And she later testified that he said, don't make me send somebody out there to kill you. She went ahead and got the abortion. So Ray Carruth was essentially royalty in North Carolina. He was a first-team first All-American in 1996 when he was playing for the Colorado Buffaloes. And when he played all four years of his college career, he wanted to be a professional football player. He was a first-round draft pick to the Carolina Panthers in 97. He was actually the 27th overall pick. And he signed a four-year, $3.7 million contract with the Panthers that included a million-dollar signing bonus. In his first professional season, he led all rookie receivers in completed passes. He also caught touchdown passes and tied him for the most, well, first among rookie receivers. I believe that number was four. So he was not a big guy by football standards. He's only five foot eleven and one ninety, but he gained a reputation for himself due to his speed. And he finished his rookie season by earning a place on the NFL's All Rookie Team for 1997, joining such football future football luminaries as Tony Gonzalez, Walter Jones, and Jason Taylor. However, injuries would plague Carruth after he broke his foot during the '98 season opener. 
He caught four passes during that game, but would not catch any others that season. And at the time that Sherrick Adams was shot in November of 1999, he had played in six games that season with 14 catches for 200 yards. When the detectives had left Sherrick Adams' bedside, assuming that they would be able to speak to her again, which she passed away, detectives began to investigate Ray Carruth. So... They found out that Ray Carruth had met Sherika Adams at a pool party in June of 1998, and the beautiful and bubbly Sherika worked in both real estate and as an exotic a dancer who had also tried a hand at acting, and she made a brief appearance in House Party 3. She and Carruth saw each other sporadically throughout the summer, but were both seeing other people, so it wasn't anything serious. They fell out of touch until November of that year. Um, when he attended a birthday party for a teammate, and that was held at the strip club where Sherika worked. According to Carruth, he and Sherika had a no-strings-attached relationship that was basically sexual, where they hooked up about five or six times. And he said there was never any talk of anything serious between them. They never dated or anything like that. And they never spoke on the phone for any extended periods of time or visited one another at their home. So this was very much strictly a hookup kind of relationship. So when Sherika became pregnant, she was very much old-fashioned woman. Her grandfather's words had stayed with her. She wanted a wedding and a husband and many children, a whole football team, she used to say. And once when she and her mother were watching a movie in which a woman couldn't have children and her mother carried the child for her daughter and gave birth to her own grandchild. Mom, Sherika said, would you do that for me? Girl, yes, Sandra said. Sandra is Sherika's mother. And it was on Mother's Day of 1999 when Sherika gave Sandra the news. You don't have to carry the baby for me. I'm going to have my own. And Sherika was thrilled to be pregnant and super thrilled about her unborn son. She would read Chancellor My First Bible out loud and immerse him in music like Bach and Beethoven. And although Sandra rejoiced with Sherika because she saw every life as a gift from God, she knew it would be complicated. Sherika wanted to give the baby the Caruth name, but her mother was against it. If you're not married when the baby comes into this world, Sandra said, he needs to be an Adams. Ray Carruth didn't want him to be anything, however. True to form, he told Sherika to get an abortion. She refused. Carruth's life was quickly diverging from the script, so to speak. After he had made the NFL All-Rookie Team in 1997 and he had his broken foot, he felt shunned by his Carolina teammates and stayed home alone playing football um, on his PlayStation. He planned to come back stronger than ever in 99, but in September, he was benched for part of the game after he dropped a crucial pass and a two-point loss to the Jags. And by mid-October against the 49ers, he suffered a left ankle sprain that would keep him out for a month. Another season was derailed. His career was going nowhere, and now another woman would soon be demanding child support. Sandra Adams, Sherika's mom, feels like that this injury coincided with the change in his attitude towards Adams' pregnancy. After initially asking Sherika to consider the abortion, Sandra said that Carruth seemed to become excited about the baby, quote unquote. For several months, she said that Carruth attended prenatal care visits with Sherika, but stopped going after he got hurt. And it seemed like he was more pressured after the injury, more pressured about money and how much the baby was going to cost him, which obviously makes sense. 
Even though Sherika was a successful real estate agent who could have paid for much of the baby's care, Karuf might have had a reason to feel squeezed. And on top of making his support payments for Rolando, he had reportedly lost money in an alleged pyramid scheme involving car title loans in South Carolina and was being sued for backing out of the purchase of a $224,000 house in Charlotte. Investigators theorized that Karuth, concerned about his NFL future and the prospect of doubling his support payments, might have panicked. It's at this point we realized that Karuth knew a guy in New York called New York and another guy called Little Man. New York weighed about 286 pounds and would have done anything for money and plenty of things for free. He had once stood on a roof for several hours throwing glass window panes down at the police. He had once set a fellow prison inmate on fire. Little Man was not so frightening, but he also knew his way around a gun and a crack deal. And for someone who wanted to solve a problem outside the law, New York and Little Man appeared to be useful men. Sherika went to a childbirth class and Caruth went with her. New York later testified under oath about that. And he said Caruth told him to meet them after the class and beat up Sherika and make her lose the baby. But he didn't show. He was nothing if not a con man, so he strung Caruth along. One time, New Yorker agreed to find Sherika at her apartment and kill the baby there. Another time, he was going to ambush her behind a restaurant. He took cash payments of $300 and $2,000 and kept delaying. And then finally, they settled on a plan to murder Sherika. Violence occurs commonly in pregnancies. Between 4 and 8% of women experience domestic violence during their pregnancies, and the effects of violence during pregnancies can be devastating to both the mother and the unborn child. Domestic violence during pregnancy is linked to depression, substance abuse, anemia, first and second trimester bleeding, and reduction in birth weight. And unfortunately, because domestic violence is rarely screened for during prenatal exams, this deadly health risk often goes undetected. And you may be asking yourself why we are talking about domestic violence in the middle of this case. Well, I feel like it's pertinent considering that currently in our country, we are experiencing the people in our governments and our government representatives pushing these anti-abortion laws um, with really no regard to how that affects pregnant women or women who may not want to keep children or who are in domestic violence situations. Our country as a whole is doing a lot better when it comes to women's rights and domestic violence. But a lot of times women get protective orders. Women try to do the right thing through the system and it fails them because the police really can't do anything but have the person leave the premises. But if a person comes up to you or is stalking you, the restraining order is simply a piece of paper. And if they aren't willing to abide by it, then you are still in danger. So a lot of times women that are in domestic violence situations who become pregnant are very high risk. And I wanted to talk about some of these statistics and the ways in which this relates to our case today as we discuss Ray, Ray Carruth and Sherika Adams. First of all, approximately each year, 1.5 million women in the U.S. are raped or physically assaulted by an intimate partner. And this number includes more than 324,000 women who were pregnant when the violence occurred. This does not necessarily apply to Sherika, but I want to point out that physical assault and rape are 
heinous crimes and a lot of times and especially more recently that weight has been weighed in our court system but before that there was a belief that if you were married to someone or in a relationship with someone you were obligated to have sex with them and you had no legal recourse if you didn't want to do that also the physical assault and no one has ever reported that Ray Carruth was physically abusive to them but he certainly leveled leveled leveraged wow sorry about that leveraged many emotional threats um and threats of physical violence with before he carried any of it out um and among the women whose pregnancies were intended 5.3 of them reported 5.3 percent of them reported abuse during pregnancy compared to 12.6 percent for women whose pregnancies were mistimed and 15.3 percent for women whose pregnancies were unwanted in Sherika's case, she was fully prepared to be a single parent. She was not asking Ray Carruth to be a parent to the child, but the state would have more than likely required that he pay additional child support for the child. So he was looking at that aspect. And because the child was unwanted by Ray Carruth, Sherika Adams lost her life. 50, and 70, 50 to 70% of women abused before pregnancy are abused during their pregnancy. This obviously does not apply to Sherika. We don't know that she ever reported any abuse against Ray Carruth. But I am going to go out on a limb here and say, and I will say this ahead of time, I am not a, a licensed therapist. I don't sit here and pretend to be one and I just want to leave with that disclaimer. But in all of the research that I have done, um, in true crime and reading about these stories and the psychology and psychopathy of people, what I have really come to learn and understand is that typically, even though there are no reported signs of abuse, that does not mean that it is not there. And I suspect that Ray Karoop, if not had gotten violent with these women, may not have gotten violent with them in a way that we back in the 90s would have thought to report, right? Like he might have shoved one of them or punched the wall or threatened to kill them which we heard the threats of violence multiple times but if somebody's not physically hitting you but they're throwing things or screaming at you you may not register that as abuse in a way that you can go report it to the police right because you can't go to the police and report that a person punched a hole in the wall in their house and emotionally abused you all you can do is, is walk away from that situation but technically there's not really anything that police officers can do for you there because no physical violence to you has occurred but it typically when you have people who behave in that manner who are threatening who are emotionally abusive it is only a matter of time before that abuse or that pattern escalates and very often they may have relationships with women where the women were very docile were very understanding the women didn't require anything of them they were able to do whatever they wanted to do and so the environment was low stress for them they didn't have to actually do anything and those women will often report that they were not emotionally abused they were not physically abused because everything went fine by the abuser standards but then as they move on to other relationships where there may be stress that triggers the situation like with Ray Karoop and losing essentially what he thought his football career or not playing because of injuries and, and realizing that he was going to have to pay more money for another child that he may may or may not have had available. 
on top of a pending lawsuit and the loss of money through a Ponzi scheme made it a very high stress situation for him. So even if it had not been Sherika with the baby, it could have been any other romantic partner and the stress of having to pay for things or the stress of having less money and maybe not being able to pay bills or the expectation that you are going to pay bills. So I'm not saying or forgiving abusers by saying that they're stressed out and that means that they should be able to be abusive. It's just that sometimes high stress situations trigger that abuse. The willingness or the ability or the want to is always been within them because we all have impulses, right? But I think for those types of people, when they are in these situations that trigger, they are not able to control these impulses like they should be able to. So again, I suspect with Ray Carruth that this pattern was already well on its way. And if it had not have been Sherika, it would have been some other woman and eventually would have seen reports of abuse come out from these women. Um, especially later if he had been out to do these things. But this is again, the early 90s or mid 90s, late 90s, and he wouldn't have been able these women really wouldn't have had any recourse because anybody that knew Ray Carruth would have said, oh no, that's not true. Women love him. So murder is the second most common cause of injury-related death for pregnant women at 31% after car accidents. And between 1990 and 2004, more than 1,300 pregnant women were murdered. This number would include Sherika Adams. Most of these women, 56% were shot to death while the rest were stabbed and strangled. So as we know, we're also facing a crisis in this country where everyone has a lot of guns, not everyone, but certainly we have gun laws that vary from state to state and the ability for domestic abusers and people that have restraining orders or a history of mental illness to have access to high powered weapons and guns is becoming a concern. And it is especially concerned for women that are involved in domestic violence situations. 77% of pregnant homicide victims are killed during the first trimester of pregnancy. Sherika was in her second trimester. She was six months pregnant, um, but the statement still stands. Um, when women become pregnant, domestic violence rates shoot up for them, even if the relationship was not abusive before. For whatever reason, the men in these situations have the propensity to be violent, and once they have a baby that they do not want or feel like they financially cannot care for and the woman is not agreeing to terminate the pregnancy that is when we see the ugly leap out and many deaths associated with pregnancies may go in undetected because death certificates and medical examiner's records do not always note when the deceased was pregnant meaning that these women could be newly pregnant and have told the partner they were pregnant and were murdered for it because they said they were going to keep it. And the medical examiner is not under any real law-bound responsibility to then disclose these pregnancies um, after the person is married, as after the person has died. Sorry about that. Now, who would be most at risk for this? It's typically women under age 20 and women who are receiving late or no prenatal care and they're the most vulnerable to intimate partner homicide. This again is not necessarily the case with Sherika, but it stands to reason that if you are a young mother or a teenage mother or a mother who is not receiving prenatal care, then there's nobody keeping an eye on you to notice things that would typically tip them off to domestic violence to ask you, are you okay? Or do you need help? And women with unintended, unintended pregnancies are two to four more times likely to experience physical violence than women with planned pregnancies, which 
makes sense, of course. If both people involved want the baby, then of course nobody's going to commit any violence towards the woman or the baby. Well, they can and they might, but in this case, Ray Carruth was not interested in being a second time parent and wanted her to terminate the pregnancy. Women who are abused during pregnancies are more likely to delay entry into prenatal care, which they're being beaten and abused, and they oftentimes do not want to go places or cancel appointments because they have to let their scars, bruises heal. And they often have pregnancy complications. And pregnant women who are victims of intimate partner violence are more likely to suffer from depression and suicide, as well as to use alcohol and drugs during their pregnancy. If you know someone who is a, domestic, a victim of domestic violence and would like help, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and that number is 1-800-799-SAFE. Again, that number is 1-800-799-SAFE. I will put that description, I will, sorry, I will put that phone number in the show notes for you, and please, if you know anybody who is experiencing a DV situation, please reach out to your local communities as well. We want to help these women as much as we can, because I think maybe if somebody had seen the warning signs with Sherika, then she may be still with us. On November 15, 1999, when Sherika was about seven months pregnant, she got a call at her apartment. Caruth wanted to take her to the movies. Sherika fired up her BMW and drove to his house. And from there, she called her mother. She said strange men were coming and going. She saw an odd transaction that involved bootleg satellite television. Something's not right, she told Sandra. I don't even know why I'm here. Just cancel the movie, her mother told her. Tell him you're not going. You're just going to leave. Sandra stayed on the phone with Sherika and heard her repeat these things to Caruth, and she heard Caruth talk her daughter back into going. No, 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 he said, quote, I'm going, I'm leaving right now, let's get your things, let's go to the car. They got in his tricked out white Ford expedition and headed off to the Regal Cinemas for a late night screening of The Bone Collector with plans to return to Caruth's house afterwards. Sherika's roommate later testified that around midnight, she got a phone call. Sherika was heading home and Ray Caruth was coming with her. Now, this was a total surprise. Sherika had left the apartment in disarray and she asked the roommate to straighten up a bit since Ray was coming home with her. A prosecutor would later say that this change of venue was a crucial part of Ray Caruth's plan. It was 10, mile, 10 miles north from his house to Sherika's apartment. He drove the white expedition and she followed in her black BMW and behind her was a gold Nissan Maxima that contained Little Man in New York. Railroad is one of the prettiest drives in metropolitan Charlotte and going north from I-485, it's a winding four-lane avenue divided by a tree-lined meridian. Median. Where did I get meridian? You cross a bridge over Four Mile Creek, and at Pineville Matthews Road, you can see the breathtaking crown-shaped sanctuary of Calvary Church. And from there, the road narrows to three lanes, then two, and it slopes down to a hollow that is secluded on both sides by trees and underbrush. And it is there, at about 12.30 a.m., Ray Carruth came to a sudden halt in the middle of the street. Sherika hit her brakes as well, and the gold Maxima pulled around and stopped on her left. She was trapped. New York had a Charter Arms five-shot 38 Special Revolver, and he emptied all five rounds into the BMW. The expedition pulled away, taking Caruth to a friend's house to play video games. 
little man turned the Maxima around in the driveway and headed south. But as he sped up the hill and saw the lonely hollow receding in the rearview mirror, he caught a glimpse of the BMW's brake lights flashing in the dark. And he knew that he had left the job undone. And the fact that they left her had left Sherika dying in the car, she was able to call 911 from a cell phone in her car that was a actually a gift from Ray Carruth himself. And that morning, she placed a call to the 911 dispatch center, and that recording is 12 minutes and 6 seconds long, and it is the sound of a woman dying. Four of the five bullets had found their mark. Three had lodged in her flesh, really without any serious harm, but one left a trail of destruction. It pierced her left side and passed through her abdomen, crossing her right chest and coming to rest near her right armpit. And along its way, it tore her stomach and large intestine and made innumerable holes in her small intestine. It penetrated her liver, her diaphragm, and her lung. And this bullet actually cut her pancreas in half. It severed the splenic artery in the vein and opened such a fountain of blood that she eventually lost it all and more. And the tireless doctors at the Carolina Medical, Carolina's Medical Center kept replacing the blood through IV lines and she kept losing it. Six liters, in fact. 150%. The lethal bullet missed the baby just as the other four shots did. And when the shooter testified in court to this, he said that although he did agree to shoot Sherika and try to murder her and the baby, he shot towards the top of the car because he could not bear to actually shoot and kill a lady or a, a baby that was still in utero. The bullets actually missed Sherika's uterus by an inch or two, but her blood was his blood. And once it started to flow out of her arteries, he wasn't getting the blood he needed. And it was pooling in his mother's chest and he began to suffocate. And it took nearly 70 minutes from the time that the shooting happened to when he was delivered via C-section. And 10 more, and he might have been stillborn, according to Doshia Hickey, the neonatologist who helped save his life. But the effects of those 70 minutes would be irreversible, because without oxygen, your cells begin to die, and in his cerebellum and basal ganglia, this is exactly what happened. There was tissue death in the brain, and even though the human body is quite adept at self-healing and regeneration, lost brain cells were gone forever. And Sandra says that she found her daughter after the C-section in one of her last moments of lucid speech. And she asked Sherika a question and she said, what do you want this baby's last name to be? And Chandra says that Sherika says Adams. And so the little boy became Chancellor Lee Adams. And when Ray Carruth showed up at the hospital bringing another girlfriend, he never asked Sandra how Sherika was doing. But according to friends, he asked repeatedly about the baby. Sometime after Chancellor's vital signs stabilized, Carruth got a picture of him and showed it off to her friends. He's along like me, Carruth said proudly, like I was when I was a child. And anybody could see it. The boy had Sherika's eyes, but otherwise he looked a lot like Ray Carruth. And on December 14th of 1999, after almost a month in a coma, Sherika Adams died at 12.43 p.m. And the key to this is that detectives had already started their investigation into Carruth. So they 
started investigating, and this investigation led them to a local de drug dealer named Michael Kennedy, who Carruth had met at a car accessory shop, as well as Kennedy's best friend, Stanley Abraham. Kennedy's statements led them to a strip club security guard by the name of Van Brett Watkins. Watkins had the criminal record and had served the time in prison and had claimed to murder four people, all hits. So authorities arrested Kennedy, Abraham, and Watkins. And on Thanksgiving Day, Ray Carruth was arrested. Carruth posted his $3 million bail with the provisions that he would not leave Mecklenburg County or should Sherka or Chancellor die, he would turn himself in. So on December 14th, after this month had passed and Sherika died, Ray Carruth knew that he was facing a first-degree murder charge, and instead of turning himself in, he convinced beauty salon owner Wendy Cole, who was heading to his native California for cosmetology school, to allow him to accompany her. And on the night of December 14th, he hid in the trunk of her Toyota Camry as she headed west, stopping at a Best Western in Wildersburg, Wildersville, Tennessee. So sorry, my people in Tennessee. Wildersville. It was Carruth's mother... Fearing for his safety, that informed authorities and his bail bondsman where he was. And while Carruth was being apprehended in Tennessee, the Carolina Panthers organization finally cut him from the team and the NFL suspended him indefinitely. And football would be the least of his concerns because this was one of the most high-profile criminal cases in North Carolina. And the trial began in November of 2000. Carruth's defense was that Sherika's murder was not premeditated and it was a result of a drug deal that he had with Van Brett Watkins that went bad. He cited a statement that Watkins reportedly told a jailer. If he had just given us the money, none of this would have happened. It was Ray's fault. The theory was put forth by the defense was that Ray Carruth and Van Brett Watkins had fallen out over a drug deal that Carruth was, Carruth was supposed to finance but backed out of. The defense called several of Carew's former NFL teammates to testify on his behalf. However, the prosecution, I think, had a very solid case. They had testimony from Michelle Wright, who was his ex-girlfriend and the mother of his eldest son, and then Amber Turner, the ex-girlfriend who aborted the pregnancy under his threats, as well as another stripper who he had been seeing. But the most explosive witnesses were, of course, Michael Kennedy and Van Brett Watkins. Because, you see, Kennedy was the driver the night of November of 1999 and testified that Carruth had commissioned Watkins for the hit on Sherika and had threatened to kill Kennedy if he refused to assist with the murder plot. Van Brett Watkins was the trigger man and he testified that he had met Carruth in 99 through a mutual friend and began doing odd jobs for him. Roughly three weeks after this initial meeting, he says that Carruth asked him how much he would charge to beat up Sherika, causing her to lose the baby. And this is when Watkins responded, I don't beat up girls, I kill people. So the agreement was after Watkins had already extorted him for $300 for beating her up, Carruth would pay $3,000, which he did pay up front for the hit on Sherika, and then another three grand once the task had been completed. Watkins testified that he did not like the idea of killing a woman, especially a pregnant one, but he still continued with this plan anyway. And as I discussed earlier, he did stalk Sherika in the months leading up to her murder, and Carruth actively participated in suggestions for how Sherika and Chancellor would be killed, including killing her at Panther's training camp, or killing her while he was away at Panther's training camp, giving him a supposedly perfect alibi. 
Watkins shot that idea down as well as Carruth's suggestion that he kill Sherico while Carruth took her to Lamaze class. And it was by November of 1999 with Sherico seven months pregnant that Carruth was impatient and frustrated. So that is when the plan came together to shoot her when they were leaving the movies. Watkins testified that he did have an opportunity to exit the vehicle and make sure Sherika was dead, but Kennedy had fled the scene so quickly after the shooting stopped that he really couldn't have. And then Watkins also seriously considered the thought of killing both Kennedy and Abrams so as not to leave any witnesses, but he had already emptied the entire clip of his extra bullets into Sherika's car and there were none left in the gun. Sherika, unbeknownst to the three of them, was still alive but bleeding profusely. And again, she used the cell phone that Ray Carruth had gifted her in order to call 911. During his testimony, Watkins openly sobbed while recounting his part in Sherika's death. And through his tears, he directed anger towards the defense table and Carruth. Quote, are you happy now? End quote. He shouted as his former, at his former friend as he stood up in the witness box. And you see, that doesn't ring true for me. It rings very hollow because of course he's happy now, but not as happy as he would be if he wasn't being tried for murder. And you had a choice. You could have called the police when he gave you the first 300 and the first 3,000 and took it to police and said, this person tried to get me to murder their girlfriend, their pregnant girlfriend, and I have the proof. There was really no reason to ever go through with murdering Sherika. In fact, at this point, I would argue that Watkins had already gotten $300 for his plan to beat up Sherika and have her lose the baby that he did not go through with. Um, and then he had taken another $2,000 for which he did not do anything. And finally, he got the $3,000 and then he was supposed to get the other three after the job was done. And they agreed to shoot her. He simply could not have showed up. At this point, he had had two or three attempts where he just didn't show. Why not just take the money and, and just not talk to Ray Carruth again? At this point, you what is he going to do? Say that you extorted him for money? Would, it, is he, what is he, would Ray Carruth have went to the police and said, I paid this man over $4,000 at this point to murder my pregnant girlfriend and he won't do it. Can you guys arrest him? Really, there was no danger of him keeping Ray Carruth's money and simply not killing Sherika. And that is the part about this that is so sad. It just didn't have to happen regardless of what Ray Carruth had requested. Obviously, he didn't know anybody else that was willing to do a murder for him because if he had, he wouldn't be talking to, to Brett Van, Van Brett Watkins in the first place, which means and sounds to me that Frankly, Ray Carruth is no murderer. He didn't want to get his own hands dirty, obviously, but he didn't know anybody who did that kind of work. And the one person he did know, he was already paying to kill somebody else. He certainly couldn't have paid Van Brett Watkins to kill himself. So really, what was the danger in just not doing it? Obviously, Ray Carruth did not take the stand in his own defense here. And on Tuesday, January 16th of 2001, the jury composed of seven men and five women began its deliberation on the four counts that had been sent to the judge. First degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, using an instrument with intent to destroy an unborn child, and discharging a firearm into occupied property. 
And on Friday, January 19th, the jury, after many votes and even sending a note to the judge that they were at an impasse, at which point the judge asked them to continue deliberations because it had only been three days, acknowledged that they had reached an unanimous verdict. It was the day before Caruth's 27th birthday. And unlike his fellow footballer O.J. Simpson, who had managed to avoid being convicted in the 1994 murders of his ex-wife Nicole, Nicole Brown Simpson and her friend Ron Goldman, Carruth didn't skate. The jury found him guilty of all charges but the first-degree murder charge. As the jury for a person would later say, they all agreed that Carruth was, quote, involved in the murder up to his eyeballs but they couldn't in good conscience convict him of first degree murder as he did not pull the trigger. I will go ahead and note now that for a lot of states, this is no longer the case. Um, if you are involved in a murder for hire plot and you are basically the mastermind or the initiate of this um, then typically you are charged with first degree murder. That has changed quite a bit. Um, this is obviously something that was kind of unheard of at the time, but the rise in people willing to pay money for a murder for hire is apparently quite a bit more than it was back then. Um, if you are a watcher of Dateline, you would see that this is actually something that comes up quite a bit for normally around three grand so it's fascinating that three grand is kind of the going number to agree to murder somebody you don't know for i guess and i say this or as an example um if i wanted to have my mom murdered which i would never do i would go to a person and offer them the money and if we were caught after my mother was murdered, then both me and this person would get first degree murder charges. Um, it does not matter that I did not pull the trigger. And typically what happens is that you are convicted on conspiracy to commit murder. Um, and the conspiracy charge stems from people getting off because they are not the trigger man, right? So they're getting less time in jail when they are the one who initiating wanting this person murdered in the first place. So laws have changed a bit to adapt and account for that so a conspiracy charge typically will get you life in prison as if you were the person that pulled the trigger i have seen some cases where the trigger man was offered immunity um in order to get the person that masterminded the conspiracy because the prosecution may not have any proof other than that person's word so they may wear a wire or you know bank transactions or continue to try to you know get them to incriminate themselves where the police can hear or have proof of it so that both of them can be charged. So that is also something that is not uncommon when the police are and the prosecutors are seeking a conspiracy conviction. So I think it's interesting that in Ray Caruth's case, although it is very clear that these people did not just decide they were going to kill Sherika Adams and an unborn Chancellor Lee Adams on their own, that Ray Caruth did not get first degree murder, um, which means that he was eligible for parole. So on January 22nd of 2001, he was sentenced and he was sentenced to prison for no less than 18 years and 11 months and no more than 24 years and four months because those are the sentencing guidelines for a second degree murder charge. Um, 
excuse me, I'm saying second degree murder and that's not what happened here. Actually, what happened here is that he was found not guilty on the first degree murder charge. So there were no charges, com, com, um, no charges that were tied to that. The only charges that were tied to his sentence were the conspiracy to commit murder, using an instrument with intent to destroy an unborn child, and the discharging of a firearm into occupied property. I would also like to note that I find really fascinating with this is that the jury said that they could not convict him of first degree murder because he didn't pull the trigger but they agreed to charge him and find him guilty of discharging a firearm onto occupied property but he didn't shoot the gun so it would it would stand to reason that if you're saying he discharged a firearm into occupied property and he's guilty of that, then he could also be found guilty of first degree murder, even though he didn't pull the trigger. So that's a little interesting tidbit in that. And I would really kind of love to kind of hear from that jury now, 22 years later, to kind of see where their thoughts are on that or why that really was that was a choice right so I really kind of have questions about that and please comment or reach out to me if you think that I am tripping about this but that just seems kind of crazy to me right you just he, he discharged he's guilty of discharging a firearm but you're saying that he didn't shoot anybody so then how did he discharge the firearm but I digress that is not what's important here um so Caruso, three other co-defender defendants Kennedy Abraham and Watkins all made plea deals prior to this going to going to trial and so the only trial in this case was Ray Caruth. Adams was Abraham was relieved in two, was released in 2001 after serving less than 2 years and Kennedy was released in 2011 after serving 11 years. Watkins took a second degree murder plea deal and is eligible for parole in the year 2046. So he is about 23 years away from parole eligibility. And I will be very honest that I don't think that he is ever going to get out of jail. Um, but somebody that also got out of jail was Ray Carruth. And after he was a model inmate and became a licensed barber, Caruth was paroled from jail on October 22nd, 2018, and he reportedly lives in Philadelphia. And shortly before his relief, his attorney claimed that Caruth fled the scene of Sherika's shooting because he felt that the shooter was after him after he had backed out on the drug deal earlier that day. Sandra Adams, Sherika's mother, chose to forgive the four men who participated in that terrible plan to kill her daughter. She sent Van Brett Watkins a letter in 2003, one that he reportedly has kept all these years, in which Sandra told him that despite the hole in her heart from the loss of her daughter, she was keeping him in her thoughts and prayers and wished him peace. Chancellor Lee Adams, the baby boy that survived the shooting that took his mother's life, suffered permanent brain damage, and as a result, he has cerebral palsy but Sandra was always quick to say that Chancellor was able differently and not disabled and he was a blessing from birth with the contagious smile that he shared with his mother. Chancellor has brought joy to his grandmother's life and he has exceeded what doctors thought that he would accomplish. Chancellor learned to walk and talk. He made straight A's in the programs that were designed for him in school and he graduated high school. He participates in dance programs and loves horseback riding. And in 2009, he was gifted with a football from uh, Panthers fullback Brad Hoover before a game and performed in the pregame activities. 
In 2018, the Panthers welcomed him and Sandra on the field before a game. And in 2019, the Panthers' Roaring Riot fan club took Chancellor and Sandra on an all-expense-paid trip to London to watch Carolina play. Chancellor reportedly wants to meet his father, although Carruth has yet had no relationship with him. Carruth did send Sandra a check and has apologized for the death of her daughter. Chancellor will be 20 five years old I'm sorry I miscalculated he will be 24 years old in November of this year so Chancellor is doing well and I will also update um it is my understanding that Ray Carruth wanted to have some type of relationship with the child um, and Sandra was staunchly against this primarily because there had been such a fight over custody at his initial birth. Ray Carruth, even though he had wanted both Sandra, or, sorry, not Sandra, both Sherika and Chancellor dead, once Chancellor was here, he actually took quite a bit of pride in the boy and was willing to take him. And once he was arrested, he filed for custody and his mother, Theodri, wanted to have joint custody of the child and felt like that she and both Ray Karuba should have access and visitation with him. In fact, Sandra was forced to take the baby to prison to see Ray Carruth through glass on a few occasions before her lawyers and the court were able to hash it out and Theodre was given very limited access to the child and Ray Carruth none at all. Um, so now that he is out, I do not believe that he has made any effort. He did try at first to contact them or get um, some type of visitation or meeting with Chancellor. And as my understanding, that did not happen. And he eventually gave up because he just wanted the child to have peace. Um, and I don't really know how you can get out of jail for a murder of somebody's mother and then say, you know, I know I murdered your mom, but I still want to have a relationship with you. I did not understand how he thought that was going to work. But as a man who wanted to have a second career as a screenwriter, maybe the way he saw it in his head was a Hollywood ending and not indicative of real life. And that, my friends, is the very crazy, insane story of Ray Carruth the murder of Sherika Adams and the attempted murder of Chancellor Lee Adams. Um, if you would like to talk to me about today's episode of the show or have any suggestions for other topics that we can cover on the show, you can email the show's email. That is at murdervpod at gmail.com. Um, you can also reach me on Twitter and on Instagram via the show's socials. And those are at murdervpod, V-E-E, -E, respectively for both. Um, I would love to talk to you about anything that you think is interesting about this case or other cases that we had covered in the past. As always, you can find us everywhere that you listen to awesome podcasts. That includes Apple Podcasts. If you could like, rate, and subscribe, I appreciate all reviews, good or bad, but I would really love it if you would leave me a five-star review. And with that being said, thank you for listening. This has been Murder V. Rope, and I am your host, V.